Thanks, Tony. Good morning, everyone. Hello, hello. I, um, it's a privilege to be with you, man. It's, uh, it really is a privilege to, to be with you. If I haven't met you, my name is Luke. I live just over the mountain over there in Fishhook, and I get to share with us message six out of six in our sexuality series, six talks in four weeks. It's gone really quickly, hey? It has flown by, and um, I know God's been speaking to us in a profound way. We, we began our journey by looking at the story that we're living in, that every single one of us as human beings lives out into life from a story, a context, a worldview that we believe. And um, what you believe about who you are as human being and who God is and what the Bible is and how we relate to other people um, informs your practices around your sexuality. Donnie spoke so well as well about how our sexual practices form us as human beings, that, um, that you, in a sense, are the product of your habits and your practices. That if you, 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 what you do with your sexuality, your sexual practices, actually over time form you into a particular person. Um, we looked at, uh, uh, Derek spoke us through singleness and the Bible's high view of singleness and how um, Christ's sufficiency is sufficient for singles, and, and singleness is a great way of glorifying God with your sexuality as well. And uh, we looked at Jesus and same-sex attraction. Um, we looked at uh, Jesus and the trans community. Uh, Ian Krieger was phenomenal in just helping us understand so much. Uh, the world has just shifted so much, and we need to catch up, and he was really good there as well. And today, I want to land by speaking about Jesus and marriage, the Christian view of marriage. My talk is going to be broken into three parts. Number one, vision. Number two, practices. And number three, uh, the Holy Spirit. Vision, practices, and the Holy Spirit. I want to say on the front end, I'm drawing from talks done uh, primarily by John Mark Homer, not John Mark Homer, John Tyson, another John, uh, in John Mark Homer's church. Uh, though, so uh, forgive me there, um, by Paul Morn, our very own Paul Morn from Common Ground Inner City, did a phenomenal marriage talk that I found so encouraging, and he's just a great reader and a great mind, Paulie, and uh, so drawing from that and from various uh, talks that I've written in the past around marriage as well. As we talk about marriage, I'm mindful that many of us in the room, we're all in different, um, different positions as you hear that subject being spoken. Some of us are single and wishing we were married. Um, and uh, some of us are single, hope to be married. Some of us are single, don't want to ever be married. Some of us are married and wish we were single. Uh, for, for those of you who are in that position, I know this is tough to you. You know, this is, this is, this is a kind of helpful provoke towards working on your marriage as well. Some of us are, are married and just working on our marriage. Some of us are divorced. And you're grappling with what this looks like to hear a marriage talk through the lens of your past divorce and the pain that you experienced there. I understand. I, my parents were divorced when I was five and then my mom remarried. There was another divorce in our house when I was 12. Again, I, I've lived through these things. These are painful things. And so there's a mixed bag of emotions when we come to a subject like marriage. Um, I want to start by saying the church is never less than a family. I have the privilege of, uh, much as I write and, and um, give, give many of these sermons, I, I, on a Wednesday or on a Tuesday night for me, I meet in a life group with Christ followers. Some are single, some are married, some are divorced. And we're in our life group and we grapple with these truths. The real power of these talks is not necessarily just in the Sunday moment, but the real power of these talks are when we grapple with what they mean for our lives in our life group. And that's where I've really met God uh, personally through this series. 
by way of introduction, last thing I want to say is to you high schoolers, it is such an encouragement to me when I come over, this mount, over the mountain and get to be here and, and see you guys leaning in in worship, see you leaning into God's word as we grapple with sexuality. You're doing a phenomenal job at working out what it means to follow Jesus. And, uh, and exactly. And I'll tell you a little bit about my story of coming to faith in high school and what that meant to me and my sexuality in a second. Let's start off, number one, a a vision for marriage. Every single one of us needs a vision for marriage. Thanks, Collie. Um, uh, We we all need a vision for marriage. I think most of us, uh, that vision tell us what it is and what it isn't. And and I want to start on this first point by comparing and contrasting a vision for marriage in our culture and vision for marriage in, uh, in, in our church as well and as a Christ follower. As Christ followers, we are those in our society who have brought our lives under Christ and we come to Jesus to reformat our thinking and our desiring around his will and his ways and his wisdom in life. For Jesus, Jesus affirms marriage. He affirms it's between a man and a woman and it it is the only place for sex as well. Uh, Let's start by, just by way of introduction, now let's start by looking at a secular view of marriage. Let's take God out of the story. Look at our culture. What is the story that our culture believes around marriage? Well, in South Africa, marriage can include any combination of men and women, okay? It is, polygamy is legal, which is one man, many women. And recently there was an outcry because polygamy is legal, one man, many women, but there was an outcry, I don't know if you saw the article, I saw it on News 24, because polyandry isn't. Now, polyandry is the opposite. It's one woman and many men. Uh, these things are uh, all on the table in South Africa. It's the more extreme version, admittedly, but let's look a little bit closer to home for many of us in the room. For, I think that for the most part, marriage is about happiness. A lot of, a lot of well, many things in our culture are about what makes me happy. And so marriage is kind of a contract that you enter, enter into with somebody else, and uh, both of you kind of partner together in life and you hope to make each other happy as you kind of progress through life together, and you hope that you get a good deal as well when it comes to these things. In South Africa, the average age of marriage among uh, men in South Africa is 37. Average age of women is 33. You can see by the trend, it's getting later and later and later in life, okay? But, but at the same time as a society, we no longer believe that sex is confined only to marriage, and so the longer we wait for marriage, the more sex is happening outside of marriage in our society. When you couple this with South Africa's horrendous history when it comes to our migrant labor realities, in other words, many, people, many, many fathers would leave homes to go and work elsewhere and may have a girlfriend there or a prostitute over there where they work as well and then return home. This is a South African reality. This has created a crisis of fatherlessness in South Africa. It's our view around marriage that is that has contributed to this in a substantial way. Uh, For instance, the United Nations uh, published a report uh, recently that um, across the globe, on average, 75% of children live at home with both parents. In South Africa, that's not 75%, it's 32%. Our country is way behind the curve in this. There's a crisis of fatherlessness that that results in part, certainly, from our secular culture's view of marriage and sexuality. Now, a very admittedly simplistic view, we've got a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time, so forgive me, but just we, we, have, to, we have to get a view there. What is, a, what is Jesus' view of uh, marriage? What is Jesus' vision for marriage? Now, remember, Jesus 
took a lot of flack for the subversive uh, nature of his teaching. Jesus wasn't killed because he was a nice guy. Um, Jesus, uh, Jesus was killed because the power structures of the day could not handle his teachings. Jesus' teachings upset the status quo of the day. And so what we've been doing through the series is, among other texts, we've primarily been camping in one of Jesus' teachings from Matthew chapter 19. Um, and, uh, and we're gonna, we're gonna finish by looking at the same text today. We've looked at it over the last four weeks. Remember the context of the story is that there's a bunch of religious leaders that have come to Jesus. They're trying to trick him. They're trying to get him to say something that gets him in trouble. And they're trying to trick him now on the, on the, on the issue of divorce and marriage. And uh, they come to Jesus, Matthew chapter 19, reading from verse four. And I want you to have a look out again for the story that Jesus believes. What is Jesus, uh, the worldview that Jesus holds? Jesus speaking now, he, he, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Couple of highlights here. Have you not read, he who created them from the beginning, male and female, leave his father and mother, hold fast to, to become one flesh, what God has joined together, let not man separate. To borrow an illustration from Ian Kruger when he spoke to us about Jesus and trans transgenderism, he spoke about this. Uh, life in our society where so much has progressed so fast, so much has changed so fast as a society when it comes to sexuality, it can feel like at times there are puzzle pieces just being flung at you. Puzzle pieces around sexual desire, physical attraction, your personal worth, relationships with other people. The religious, religious leaders of the day came in through the puzzle piece of marriage, the puzzle piece of divorce at Jesus. All these puzzle pieces being flung at you and you're kind of trying to, trying to pull them together about how they fit together and build this picture into how to live out your life. Now, what Jesus is, in a sense, doing in Matthew chapter 19 is he's holding up the puzzle box. And he says, look at this picture. This is how you fit these pieces together. What's the puzzle, puzzle box that Jesus is lifting up? Look at what he does. He says, have you not read? First thing he does, he has a high regard for the Bible. He has an authority in the scriptures. Have you not read in the scriptures? In Jesus' puzzle box, there's a high authority for the scriptures. He points back, he says, from the beginning. He points back to original design. God made them male and female. He has a high view of the designer, the creator God, at work in Genesis in uh, creating this world and human beings. Jesus' puzzle box has God as a designer and, and a designer with intent. And Jesus' puzzle box is male and female. They are equal, yet they are different. They are like opposites. Fit each other. Physically, yes, but also in the rest of life. Like opposites. We see in Jesus' puzzle box, there's a leaving and there's a cleaving. There's a leaving behind of a family and there's the beginning and initiation of a new family that's formed in the world. Many of which, as we saw in the statistics, these families are missing in our society. Two become one flesh. I mean, I don't, I, we read this, and if you're a Christian for some length of time, you've heard this before. But, but just think of the mystery of this. Two people becoming one flesh. 
And, and, and what Jesus points to here is he says, this is no just natural thing. What God has joined together. There's something supernatural that happens that God himself knits these people together. It's a unity of body and soul and mind. It's a deep thing. It's a covenant that God does. And we should not seek to separate this thing that God has done and God has wrought together. Now, as a Christ follower, what we do is we bring every aspect of our lives underneath his word, which is why I can't wait next week. We're getting back into the book of James. I've loved looking at sexuality for four weeks, but we're coming out, we're lifting up James. We work through these scriptures to see how we as Christ follows, who we become as we become more like Christ. These scriptures form and reformat our lives. Now, we, we are coming to Jesus' puzzle box and we're saying, will you reformat my sexuality, because this is not the story that you automatically get in our culture. High schoolers, this is not what you're gonna get as you do life as a high schooler. I know because um, my sexuality was not shaped this way as I was growing up. I went to an all-boys school. I come from East London. I went to an all-boys school there, a school I really loved. I didn't, my parents never spoke to me about sexuality. I remember when I was nine or 10 years old, this mysterious book, the title of the book was called Where Do I Come From? And it was like this cartoon drawing thing, these little like, like little baby boy with male parts and little baby girl with girl parts and, and this, like the sperm swam into the egg was this book, right? And this book had like this mysterious power when I was alone or I was coming to watch TV, then the book would mysteriously just appear where I would sit or in some prominent position where I would see it. Now, no one ever spoke to me about this book, but it kind of just had a life on its own. When someone else came to visit, the book would disappear somewhere. It, just, it was like the Bermuda Triangle and the Flying Dutchman book was like moving around the lounge, all hoping I would just read it and figure it out, right? The truth is I learned about sex and sexuality for the most part from my mates. Now, when you grow up in an all-boys school and you learn about sex and sexuality, you are discipled to become one thing, and that's a pervert, okay? I can say that honestly before you. It's real, and it's probably true for many of you as well, right? In the absence of any genuine help and instruction, just a bunch of 12-year-olds working this stuff out. I remember sitting as a 12-year-old. I, th I think I had turned 12. We were writing exams. I don't know if I was still 11. And I was bust for smuggling a picture from a porn magazine. I had stuck to the back of a piece of white paper so no one could see what it was. And the deputy headmaster came looking for exam cheat notes in our desks. And the poor guy found much more than he bargained for in my desk. I'm laughing about it. I remember that conversation. It was very awkward. I was very afraid when he was gonna phone my dad. He never did. But that's how I learned about sex and sexuality. This puzzle box that Jesus held up. It's like, like you couldn't be more different than the world that I, I don't know how you work this stuff out, but it doesn't automatically just get absorbed into you. But here's the thing. When I came to Christ, this angry, messed up, sexually dysfunctional teenager. I every part of my life was brought under Jesus. Say, Jesus, reform me. I wanna become like you. Take my, take my time, take my money, take my hopes, take my dreams, take my desires, take my enjoyment of alcohol, the way I used to do parties with my mates, all these parts of my lives, and take my sexuality and reform me into the likeness of you. And, and I had a long way to go when it came to, to sexuality. And, and, and I know that, and I was freshly reminded of that. I told you uh, two weeks ago, we moved house and we moved into our new home. And when you're unpacking all the boxes, Lauren and, and the kids came across um, my wedding video. 
And uh, I hadn't watched my wedding video in a long, long time, but uh, they put this wedding video on. And there I was 24 years old when I got married, so a long time ago. And, um, and uh, they started laughing, and they're laughing, and they're laughing at my wedding video. And I'm upstairs, I'm building a bed for my son, Jack. And, um, and I come to look what they're laughing at. You know what they're laughing at? They're laughing at me standing in the front of the church ugly crying during worship. You know ugly cry when you're like convulsing and sobbing and it's not, there's no dignity in that and you can't stop yourself? Been there? And Lauren's like just singing to Jesus, lovely, all normal, and I'm ugly crying. And I'm ugly crying. I'll tell you why I'm ugly crying. I can, I can still feel it. I, I know, I know what I felt then. I know what it was to be so broken and so messed up, to have a worldview that was so sexualized and so selfish and so unchristlike, and to have had God do a work in me in those years to the point where I could stand before and, and I was about to be given in marriage to, to, to this wonderful woman who I, I was coming into love for the rest of my life and that was a good thing for her because of how far God had taken me in transforming who I was. Now, I've got a long way to go. Don't get me wrong. And every year and every day I'm growing. But God has done a work. As, we bring my, as I bring my life, as you bring your life under him, he transforms us. The, the worst man that Lauren will ever be married to in her life was that man on that day. Because every day since then, I'm trusting that little by little, little by little, Jesus is reforming me into his likeness. And I, as, as a husband, am growing in that as well. We have a vision of, of, of marriage that Jesus gives us and we're bringing our lives under that. But now elsewhere in the New Testament, this vision is both affirmed and it is expanded as well. The Apostle Paul quotes Jesus, quotes Genesis, but then he develops it further in this aspect of marriage as well. We'll look at Ephesians chapter five now. Ephesians five verse 31. Paul writing now and quoting, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. If you've been married for any length of time, you know this. This mystery is profound. It's mysterious at times. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Hang on, what's happening here? There's a lot of echo in what Paul is saying here. Paul's echoing Jesus' words, echoing Genesis. But notice how this vision of marriage expands beyond just two people. My marriage to Lauren is not just Lauren and I anymore now. Now, this union refers to Christ and the church. That something in the way in which we love one another is supposed to depict to a watching world the way Christ loves the church. That this marriage here takes its cues from here and then it displays back to a watching world Christ's love for the church. Two like opposite people, selflessly loving and serving one another, submitting to one another for the good of the other person. This marriage is about that, Christ's love for us. I'm not trying to please the world today. Let me be clear. I'm looking at the scriptures saying, what is a vision of a Christian marriage and what does it look like to live marriage out in this way? Tim Keller says this. 
By the way, Tim Keller wrote an extraordinary book of marriage. You can buy it at the back there. It is brilliant. I own it. I've read it. It's glorious. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. If you can afford it, please buy it and read it. If, even as you grapple with what it means to be married one day, if you're single, if you'd like to be married, it's worth reading. This is a devotion that he wrote as well. He and Kathy wrote A Seal Upon Your Heart. It's a kind of devotional to help married couples. In the devotional, this is what he says. There are all sorts of great institutions and human enterprises that the Bible doesn't address and regulate. And so we're free to invent them and operate them in line with general principles for human life that the Bible gives us. But marriage is different. As the Presbyterian Book of Common Worship says, God established marriage for the welfare and happiness of humankind. Marriage did not evolve in the late Bronze Age as a way to determine property rights. No, at the climax of the Genesis account of creation, we see God bringing woman and man together to unite them in marriage. The Bible begins with the wedding of Adam and Eve, and it ends with the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, with the wedding feast of Christ and the church. Marriage is God's idea. It's certainly a human institution, and it reflects the character of a particular human culture in which it's embedded. But the concept and the roots of human marriage are in God's own action. And therefore, what the Bible says about God's design for marriage is crucial, which is why we need to come to him and say, God, teach me, show me the puzzle box. I wanna learn from you how to do marriage. Now, when you contrast secular culture and Christian culture or uh, the, in terms of marriage, the two words that are most important to understand here is covenant and contract. Contract in our culture, and covenant in the church. Contract is this. Contract is, is I'm getting into this thing, and I will do this, and you do that. And I will do this, and you do that. And as long as, I, as, long as you keep doing that, I'll keep doing this. And then we'll, we'll, then we'll be okay. But, but the moment you stop doing, you stop fulfilling your end of the bargain, contract language, well, then I'll start withholding my part of the bargain. And if, and if you withhold long enough from me, well, I'm not getting any younger. And time, you know, time marches on for nobody. So I, I have a right then, because you're in breach of your side of this thing, to go and find what I'm looking for somewhere else. It's marriage, marriage as a functional partnership versus marriage as a covenant, a deep union. Now, the, the, the late chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, Speaking of relationships in, in nature in general, this is what he has to say about this, understanding covenant and contract. Economics and politics are arenas of mediated principled competition for money and power. But social goods, in, in contrast to money and power, like knowledge and trust and learning and friendship and love, these inherently work differently. The more I share when it comes to social goods, the more I have. It's not the same truth, money and power. The more I share, the more I have. Social goods don't operate by the logic of scarcity and zero-sum games. So where those goods are involved, we should promote cooperation rather than competition. Now that cooperation can take two forms, a contract or a covenant. In a contract, two parties, each focused on their own personal interest, what do I get out of this? come together for a specific purpose from which both benefit for a limited time. 
and I read that again, in a contract, two parties, each focused on their own personal interests, come together for a specific purpose from which both benefit for a limited time. In a covenant, two people come together with a moral commitment to stay together in good and in bad times. I am tying myself to you, come hell or high water, we are together for the greater good. And by doing so, those two people are themselves transformed. Contracts are about personal interest. Covenants are about identity. Contracts benefit us. Covenants transform us. So when Lauren and I got married, we were married for two years and Ben arrived. Ben, my firstborn son. And when Ben arrived, he gives you nothing back. I mean, that little guy comes into this world and he poops and he cries and he breaks stuff and he makes noise and he robs your sleep. And, he, and when, does he pay you for this? Does he pay you for that? You know, he gives you nothing. And it's like two in the morning and he's vomited for the third time and you've changed his bedding again. It's just wonderful, guys, just being a parent, you know? And, and now you've changed his bedding and you've put more and then he vomits again and it's three o'clock and you, or you've, got, you've got to work tomorrow and you've got to stand in front of all these people and talk and be like energy and stuff and you're just dying, you know? And eventually you've taken your own bedding off your own bed to keep him warm just before he vomits on it again and you've got nothing back from this kid. Yet you do it because you've covenanted to him and it provides safety and security to him to grow and develop as a human being because covenant, and you know what happens? You do that for 18 years. Everything in me, the selfish, sinful person that I am, nothing like you, but that's who I am. I'm learning to love another person in spite of what I don't get back from them. And, and it ties, gets, gets harder as you're a teenager. I'm sorry to say this, guys. It's true. And you know what happens as you do that? The selfish nature of my heart is transformed through the covenant, this identity that I have as father and he's my son. I become transformed to be the kind of person who gives rather than just to get. At the same time, you contract in your marriage to your wife. While you're covenanting and giving out and giving out and giving out and giving out to your kid, One of you gets sick, one of you gets tired, one of you goes through something difficult, depression, you lose a job, COVID comes along, you haven't got it to give anymore. Oh, so you stop giving, so I stop giving. I stop, I stop mistrusting. And all the time you've covenanted your kids, but you've contracted to your spouse. And year by year, and you start to withhold, and I start to withhold, and then we don't talk about someone, and eventually what happens is 18, 21 years, who knows how long before they leave the house, and this one's been transforming you, and this one, you're kind of doing like, I think we all did as siblings, you know? And the kids leave the house, and you look at each other, and you wonder, what are we still doing in this marriage? What have we still got in common? And how many end? Because we contracted, we didn't covenant. It was personal interest, what do I get? Not, how do I bless you? How do I serve you? How do I love you? Even if you had, you're not a Christian, I know there's a part of your heart that longs for a covenant marriage. That you think marriage is better in covenant than contract. We, we love, in our secular culture, we, 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 even there we long for it. You, you've heard of the, the great prophet and poet, Edward Christopher Sheeran. You've heard of him? <laughs> Edward, Edward Christopher Sheeran, Ed Sheeran. Uh, he, uh, 
He says this, he says, when your legs don't work like they used to before, when I can't sweep you off my feet, will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? And darling, I'll be loving you till we're 70. And baby, my heart could still fall as hard at 23. And I'm thinking about how people fall in love in mysterious ways, maybe by the touch of your hand. Oh me, I'll fall in love with you every single day. When I covenanted to Lauren that wedding day, I said, I promise to be there a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. It doesn't matter if there's money, sickness, wealth, poverty, suffering, COVID, I'm gonna be there, babe to love and to serve you. I'm not a victim of my circumstances. I'm not even a victim to how I will feel 10, 10 years from now. I am committing to pitching up and to selflessly loving you even till we're 70. Okay, Ed, that's a great picture of something. I guess I want that. But how do I do it? I mean, we all want something. How do we do it? So let's look from vision to practices. How do we get this? Let's look at some practices. It's gonna be messy, but we've got one talk on marriage before we back into James, so we're gonna get there. Okay, how does Paul say? Ephesians chapter five, he says, be filled with the Spirit. We'll come back to that later. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Try keep listening. Husbands, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies." He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, I know, I know words like submission, heck, even words like husband and wife make the hairs on the back of our neck stand up. The way in which the Bible works is, the Bible was written for you, but it wasn't written to you. So what we've got to do is we've got to go back and understand what did the original author, Paul in this instance, mean to them then? How did they understand it? How did they hear it? And then we double back to ourselves to understand what does it mean to us now. Now, Paul wrote this into a city called Ephesus. At the heart of the city of Ephesus was this great big statue of the goddess Artemis. And and you would worship this goddess by engaging in sex with uh, temple prostitutes. This was a city that was centered around pleasure. It was a city where you worked hard, where you played hard, and, uh, and, and it was a very kind of sexualized city as well. You didn't know this as well about the first century. It was a terrible time to be a woman. 
the, the kind of worldview of women at the time was incredibly low. In Greco-Roman society, baby girls were often left outside to die from exposure because they desired sons more than girls. It was tragic. It was, men married pretty much just to continue a family line. They married much younger than themselves. Wives were expected to be faithful but men were allowed to just kind of do as they please. They could sleep with whoever, whenever they wanted, and they did. This was written into Aristotle's household codes. Men did as they pleased, and women kind of just had to put up with it. Okay, now I want you to double back and think of Paul's words now. How radical were Paul's words at the time? You can imagine the men choking on their soup as Paul says, submit to one another. What? Oh, of course, of course, woman, but, but surely not submit to one another. It was shocking. It was a vision of marriage that flowed from a, a life yielded to Christ, Christ, not myself, so, so self and, and Christ, and, and now Christ comes to the top. My life is yielded to him. As I yield my life to Christ, I receive a new vision of marriage. It was a, it was a, it was a, a vision of marriage that came from being yielded to Christ and being, as we'll see in a second, empowered by the Holy Spirit. The mega theme of the book of Ephesians is how the gospel, how Jesus invaded human history, the gospel comes and it transforms our lives. The operating system, of heaven comes in and, and, and reformats the operating system of the human heart. It invades all of our lives and it works its way out through all of our relationships. It's gospel that comes in and then outworking through our relationships. And so marriage is transformed by the, by the operating system of the gospel to look differently. And marriage becomes a covenant from two, a covenant by two people who lay down their lives, denying themselves in favor of serving the other. And so we see wives laying down their, li laying, laying down their wants and their desires, submitting to their husbands. And we see husbands laying down their very lives in favor of the needs and the betterment of their spouses. Covenant love means, shocking word coming, Self-denial. Whichever side of the gender spectrum you're on, covenant love means self-denial. It's sacrificial. It's me giving up what I want and what I, my desires, etc. Those things get pushed down in, in favor of what does my spouse need? What, does, what will cause her to flourish? It's denying myself in order to love another human being in spite of my own self. And it's only possible through the Spirit's power. It's, it's, it's entirely different than this kind of love that we get in our culture or this way of life in our culture where I wanna do this and this is my hopes and this is my dreams and this is how I'm gonna find my happiness and pursue project self, et cetera, et cetera. Rather, Paul says, no, 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 you lay down your life. You sacrifice in and of yourself. It's self-denial so as to love another human being. It looks remarkably like Christ in heaven who had everything that he wanted and lacked nothing and gave it all up to become a penniless carpenter in a tiny little 450 people village called Nazareth and lived in the dust and the dirt of the world 
a perfect sinless life before he died a horrible sinner's death. We in this story are the, are the babies in my little covenant story earlier who offered him nothing in return. Yet he gave up everything so as to beautify and better and transform us. It's this in the shape of this. And it was revolutionary. Husbands, love your wives as your own body. Remember the household codes of the day, men could do what they wanted, women had to kind of put up with it. Paul says, love your wife as your own body. You want your wife to keep her body pure for you? You keep your body pure for her. What? Imagine the two dudes finishing clocking off work at the blacksmith shop and they've had a long day of work. They've been paneling that steel in front of the furnace all day and the, the secular dude says to his Christian, newly Christian mate, hey man, why don't we go hit the pub after work and then let's head on to the temple and let's sample some of those new prostitutes, right? And the Christian dude says, no, 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 it's okay, man. I'm, I'm heading home. My wife, you know, we just had a new baby and it must be tough. I just, I just wanna get home as soon as I can so I can help her. It's been so hard for her. I just, want, I just want to be there. I just want to help her. And the dude, secular guy goes, what? Well, it will at least come later to the prostitutes, right? And the Christian guy says, no, man, you, you just, you don't get it. I just, I love that woman. She, she needs me and she just loves, she loves me. She gets me in a way that no one else gets me. I just, I just wanna be with her. I don't wanna be with anyone. I don't need anybody. It's just her that I wanna love and serve. And this poor secular guy looks at this in that culture and he goes, I've got no category for this thing. It's out of this world that you would forego and give in order to bless another, denying yourself for someone. It, it's a picture of the gospel is what it is. Now, it's true. These verses, isolated and pulled out of context, can get used in helpful ways, and they have been. Paul is not, neither am I, in any way defending abuse. If you are hearing this or watching this, and you're in an abusive relationship, please will you come and speak to someone in the church leadership here, that we can help you. There may even be legal ramifications to get out of that dangerous situation. Please don't hear these words and not hear what I'm saying, or hear what I'm not saying, sorry. Nor does this passage say that all women must submit to all men, by no means. This is speaking about a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife who are in mutual submission, denying themselves so as to serve the other. Wives denying themselves and submitting to husbands who are daily dying to themselves to serve their wives in, in the shape of the gospel. Wives, if your husband ever says to you, submit, you know what you say to him? You say, die. Because that's what Paul is saying here. You know, don't, don't kill him, but, but that's the pattern. It, it's, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not contract. It's not me, and this is what I want to do, and this is what you want to do, and we can all just, as long as we can, I can get what I want, and you can get what you want, we can. This is, I lay it down. I lay it down to lift you up to beautify you, to better you. And in so doing, I mirror Christ. And it's both husbands and wives too. So to the men, I say, husbands, you are the only le legitimate source of romance in your wife's life. No elbowing allowed, ladies. 
Is your wife feeling loved, appreciated, valued, Paul's word, cherished, and sacrificed for? Because if she's not, you're the only legitimate source for that. When she looks at your calendar, when she looks at your spending habits, your budget, after Jesus, is she number one? Even before the children. Men, die to yourselves, deny yourself, and love and serve your wife. Our modern culture has really trashed masculinity. We have, we have, and I understand, in reaction to some really toxic stuff that needed addressing as well. Don't get me wrong, but we have really hated on men in our modern culture as well. And, and at the same time, we've also grown up in an age of hedonism. Hedonism, guys, is a fancy word for the life in the pursuit of pleasure. Me living for my own happiness. And, and so these two things come together as a cocktail for young men growing up in our modern world who never actually end up growing up anymore. Because they can't really grow into become men anymore. That we don't desire that. And, and yet all of life is, is, is about the pursuit of pleasure and happiness. And so men are remaining selfish longer and longer and longer. We live, we live lives like little boys chasing greatest sporting accolades right throughout our years, playing computer games, lots to the, to the whatever time of night. We're boys' nights all the time. There's a word that's come out in our culture. It's this. It's called man-ages. If you take the word teenager and you substitute man, and then you get, a, you get a teenager trapped in the body of a man. If Jesus loved the church like a man-ager, we'd all be finished. Men are to live benevolent lives in love and in service of their wife. To be a husband to your wife means leveraging your God-given maleness to, to better your spouse. It means we forget about selfish exploits and we be famous at home. And we, we go a long way to undoing the crisis of father, fatherlessness in our nation. To the woman, Paul speaks about respecting your husbands. Ladies, do you respect your husbands? Your husband. <laughs> Are you his biggest fan? Does your husband feel your sense of appreciation? Can I say that if you're using disrespect as a kind of means to get at him, oh, it, it, I don't know why this is, I'm not a psychologist, I don't understand it, but somehow I, I experience love through respect as well. When you disrespect me as someone who's close to me, you, it, it, it just makes it worse. You, you call that a date night, really? Is that the best you've got? Is that, is that, what, trying really, is that what trying really looks like for you? You know, when, when we, when we it, it, it undermines, it, it makes it worse. Guys, we've got to work at our marriages. Guys, you grow up in a Disney culture that's like princess and prince here and, and all the drama and tension and difficulty and work of the movie is the two of them finding each other, right? And then they find each other and then they live happily ever after. Like, that's rubbish. Life, the drama starts when you find each other. Before that, you were single. You had no other expectations on you. Now you've got to work at this thing, right? Now the work begins. And, and, we, and we live in a culture that says, no, 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 it should just happen naturally, you know? If, 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 uh, if you have to put in effort, then it's not authentic. It's not genuine. Rubbish, man. 
You've got to work at this stuff. Uh, we had a lady in our church before they moved to uh, Sedgefield. She was an extraordinary violinist. She had to do a final exam in which she became the highest qualified violinist in South Africa. And uh, in preparation for this exam, it was a four-hour exam, she had to practice at length. And uh, Lauren and I were invited to come to her house to a recital where she played through her exam piece, which she was going to do for the examiners in a week's time. She needed a kind of like a practice run. And there were 20 of us squeezed into her lounge, all brought our camping chairs, and we sat in this little room as Cherith picked up this violin and she played this thing. And when she played it, it looked, she just picked it up. It just looked so natural. You could, be, you could be fooled to thinking she just picked it up and that's how she played. But what you wouldn't have known is that for months leading up to that exam, every single day of her life, for four hours, she would practice playing that instrument. She woke up at four o'clock in the morning, practiced to six o'clock before she woke up the kids. And then the rest of the two, the two hours, she would make up in 15 minute to 20 minute chunks throughout the day in order to hit the four hour target every day for months, so much so that it looked natural but it was the result of working at something. Guys, if you're in a marriage, you've got to work at this thing. It doesn't just happen. How do you work at it? Here's a couple of tips as we must land. Um, you can tell why the first meeting went long. Hey, it was me. Um, let's, let's go. Uh, why not reverse engineer your marriage? Why not reverse engineer your marriage? Sounds super romantic, I know. Um, to reverse engineer something is to look ahead and you ask yourself, where do I want to be in five years' time? For me, in five years' time, my eldest son, Ben, will be finishing high school and my youngest son, Jack, will be finishing primary school. So Laura and I go, five years' time, what do we want our life to look like? What friends do we want in our life? What do we want our church to look like? Where do we want to be living? What do we want our life to look like in five years' time? And then you reverse engineer, you work backwards to say, what habits... What practices, what do we need to start doing now in order to make sure that we can get there? If you're a teenager and you think to yourself, one day I'd like to stand at the front of the church like Luke did when he got married and have all of this junk around sexuality and life undone. What do I need to start doing now in my sexuality and my sexual practices to make sure that by the time I get to that moment, which I hope to get to, I can stand there and be a blessing to someone else and not bring a bunch of baggage into this thing? because God has done a work in me. You're reverse engineering your marriage. And, and, then, and then in your marriage, another tool, four simple questions to ask. Four, and you can ask it about marriage and around sex. These are revealing questions. And please, I know that marriage can be a place where we can really hurt each other as well. So please be mature, be sensitive in how you think about your response to your spouse as you grapple with these. But four questions. Number one, what's wrong with our marriage? What's wrong? What do we want to cease doing? What do we need to stop doing now? One couple I remember sitting with, they got into this habit when they were fighting where, where one of them would say, um, would say uh, well, why don't you just find someone else to do that for you? Well, I'll just find someone else to do this for me. And they realized this phrase was just like, no, no, that's, that's not what we believe as Christians. No, we, we, we fix our problems inside within here, you know? We, we don't step out of, it's covenant, it's not contract. And there was just some phrases that they needed to stop because when the spouse heard that, it was deeply wounding to them. So what do we need to stop doing? Maybe it's phrases, maybe it's habits, I don't know. You'll know what your things are. Uh, number two, and this is a critically important question that we never really do. What's really good in our marriage? I just love it when you do this. 
Celebrate the wins. Man, life is hard enough. There's enough negative stuff around. Celebrate the wins in your marriage. Laura and I got to sit at a, a, a talk for grade sevens in our school recently, and our son had just done so well. Not all, not, our kids don't always do well. I want you to know that. But this, was, this was a win. And we just looked at each other, and we just said, hey, I know it's been hard, but flip, I feel like we're doing okay here. We just held each other, and we just celebrated that together. Those are the sweet moments in life. You just got to enjoy them. Ask the question, what's confused? What do we need to clarify? Where are we missing each other here? And the last one, what's missing? Given that's where we wanna be there, what, what do we need to start doing now in order to be there? Philip Yancey says this, marriage strips away all the illusions about sex pounded into us daily by the media. Few of us live with oversexed supermodels. Instead, we live with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, body odors, lots to look forward to high schoolers, bad breath, body odors, unruly hair, who menstruate and experience occasional impotence, who have bad moods and embarrass us in public, who pay more attention to our children's needs than to our own. We live with people who, re who require compassion, tolerance, understanding, and an endless supply of forgiveness. So do our spouses. Such is the ironical power of sex. It lures us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need far more than sex, sacrificial covenant love. And that's the place we're transformed. Last point, and we'll, we'll, we'll be quick here. The Holy Spirit, a vision of Christian marriage, practices, and I know there's much more we could have said, Lastly, the, the real big how is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul says all of these, there's other relationships Paul is regulating in line of the gospel here too, but the, but the opener here is be filled with the Holy Spirit. Our faith is, yes, it's rational. Yes, it makes sense. Yes, it makes, I believe to the core of my being that my Christian faith makes more sense of the human experience and life in this world than any other philosophy and religion in the world. I do that. I'm not saying that to pick a fight. I really believe that to the core of my being. But, but that's not why I'm a Christian. Ultimately, there is a supernatural component to our faith because God has stepped in and revealed himself. There is, it's not just logic is what I'm saying. There's a supernatural component to our faith where the gospel in Jesus Christ coming down, the gospel belief transforms my heart. But God doesn't leave me that way. He literally sends the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to come and to infill me and you. Husband, wife, single person, trying to navigate this gap till 37 or whenever it is you get married or 33, whenever it is. The Spirit of God comes and dwells within you and he, he empowers this kind of husbanding and he empowers this kind of wifing and he empowers this kind of being a high schooler in the way of a gift to your spouse one day. It's the Spirit of God supernaturally alive and at work within you. You get to draw from him as a husband. I've, I know we set a bar. Jesus and Paul sets a bar like this for marriage. It would be cruel if he just left you to jump to it on your own. But no, he doesn't. Christ steps down in the gospel, transforms my heart, sends the spirit to empower us to live in his ways. Wake up every day, husband, wife, high schooler, single person, divorcee, you know God's standards as we close sexuality. You get to, he doesn't leave us as 
orphans or abandoned to try and live these things out. He fills us with his spirit and empowers the day-to-day moments of our lives. When you need to forgive, when you need to try again, when you need courage, when you've heard this message and your wife has elbowed you till you blew and you know you need to repent, you say, God, would you fill me? God, I've messed it up. Will you forgive me? We believe in repentance. We believe in confessing our sin. I've messed up. I confess it to my spouse. I confess it to someone else, a trusted friend. Say, will you stand with me? Pray with me. Holy Spirit, will you fill me? Empower me. I need courage. Jesus is not just a list of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations. Lots of people in our world think of that. No, Jesus is a living source to empower you to live in his ways. Draw from him, draw from him, draw from the spirit of God. We'll stop. Can, I pr- can we pray for us and land? Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna land it there. We, we went to communion today. You can just hand in your, on your way out. But, uh, but thanks, Lukey. Uh, why don't you stand and let's, uh, let's just receive this prayer and, uh, and do some business with God. Come on, man. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for a vision of marriage that is extraordinarily different than the world in which we live. It's so beautiful, yet at times it feels too lofty. It feels out of reach. And so I thank you, Christ, that I never have to do this in my selfish, in my flesh, in my own strength. I thank you, Christ, that you modeled this, that you gave up heaven to become a human being. You lived through poverty, you suffered, you died on a cross in order to forgive and transform my heart, to change my very, the very biases of my, of my own heart away from myself. The bias of my new nature would be toward godliness. So you transform me on the inside. And then you meet me with the Spirit's power to empower me. I wanna pray for single people right now, Jesus, who are struggling and wanting to live in your ways, Jesus. You pray, Holy Spirit, will you fill me? Jesus, will you prove your sufficiency to me by, 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 by showing me how you love me more than any other human being ever could? Only you can complete me. Only you are my sufficiency, Jesus. Will you forgive me when I've looked to other things? I've looked in loneliness, perhaps to other, other, other people, maybe even sinful habits. Jesus, would you forgive and transform me, restore me in your grace and lift me up to your godly ways. Husbands and wives, have you, have you heard this? For some of us, actually, it's calling it. It's confessing and repenting. I've been sinful, I've been selfish, I've neglected my spouse. I held back because I contracted and when, when I felt she was doing this or he was doing this, I felt it absolved me of having to do my side. In fact, now I remember, Jesus, I love because you love me, not because my spouse is loving me. I love because when I love, 
in getting nothing in return. I mirror your love for me and my motivation and where my heart, which is hard, is soft. It's because I've looked at you, Jesus, who loved me when I gave you nothing and you have softened my heart and you've won me over. And in this place of soft, tender heart, I wanna respond to your son or to your daughter in doing likewise. Forgive me when I've been selfish, Christ. And empower me to love in self-denial, in servant-heartedness. May my, the way I do marriage communicate to my spouse that after Christ, he or she is the most special person on the planet in my life. Lord, I realize I've got a work to go. Will you help me, Lord? Empower me with your spirit. Give me grace because I will mess this up. But the gospel means I confess to my spouse. I confess to you and I receive empowering grace to live in new ways. And Jesus, maybe there's someone here who's trapped in an abusive marriage. I pray that you would lead to that person's rescue by giving them courage to speak to one of the church leaders to say, hey, come, let's help. Let's help get you to a place of life again in this thing. Christ, we trust you in every area of our lives, especially in our marriages. Jesus, our Holy Spirit, we draw from you that which we need to live the lives you've called us to live. May our marriages mirror your love to our society uh, of others, Jesus. May people see the gospel in our marriages, we pray. Amen.